Hello, Relatively Prime listeners. It's your host, Samuel Hansen. I'm just popping in here to let you know that what you're going to hear today is a live recording of the episode that we did at the joint mathematics meetings this January in Atlanta, Georgia. And if you are perhaps interested in, say, attending a live show sometime in the future, there's one really good way for you to help that happen, which is going to patreon.com slash relprime and becoming a backer of the show. This will let me keep making the show and let me keep on growing it and hopefully, hopefully soon, do a tour of live episodes of Relatively Prime. This is something I am really trying to put together and your support would be absolutely integral to helping me do this. And you could be just like Robert Swarthout, Brian Brunswick, Stuart Hungerford, and Bradley Booms, who are all patrons of the show, backing me through Patreon. So once again, that's patreon.com slash relprime, or just go to patreon.com and search Relatively Prime. Pretty sure we're the only one. And now, let's go to Atlanta, Georgia, this past January, and the first live show of Relatively Prime. So, fact number one. Rural Wisconsin town meetings are super boring. Like, I'm, I'm telling you, just absolutely ridiculously boring. And I learned this about a year and a half after I graduated high school. Uh, but the night that I learned it, it wasn't actually the most important fact that I learned that night. So I was sort of at loose ends. I had, you know, graduated high school and I was going to go to the most liberal of all the liberal arts colleges, and I was going to study polyscience, and then I was going to create this anarchist utopia and save the world. That, that was my quite literal plan. It was, it was going to be fantastic. It's, it's too bad that I didn't, because we'd all be even happier than we are now here at the joint meetings, but that isn't what happened. And then the next year, I, oh, and it, that didn't happen because I was, I was too young. I graduated a little bit early, and my dad didn't think I was old enough to go to college by myself, and... So I stayed home. I worked at the fruit tent. I sold everyone that I could yellow watermelon. And if you haven't tried yellow watermelon, I can't believe I haven't mentioned this on the show before, go eat yellow watermelon. It is the greatest thing in the world. I absolutely love it. Uh, and then the next year, I was, I was going to go and I was going to study video game design. I'd gotten into a university that offered a, you know, a program in it, and I was going to go do that. And then at the end of that year, I, well, you know, universities are expensive and a loan fell through, and uh, then I didn't go do that, which is why this night that my dad's hometown asked him to come talk at a town meeting about how to run a farmer's market, I was there with him because he asked me to come. Because I literally had nothing better to do. But as I said, these meetings, they are boring. And so I had already gone up and grabbed, grabbed, you know, that Wisconsin plate of, you know, cheese and summer sausage that's at every single thing in Wisconsin ever. It, and it's, it's super tasty, but I'd grab two of them. And I couldn't really go up and grab a third because, well, that would have just been obnoxious. And I was raised in the Midwest, and we try our best not to be obnoxious. So instead, I asked my dad for a pen, thinking I would you know, flip over the paper plate that that summer sausage and cheese had been on. And I would start to doodle or something. I don't, I don't know what my plan was. But instead, I, I started thinking about calculus and trying to remember how to do a derivative. And then just, I started going, I started remembering, I started doing calculus again for the first time in a year and a half. And it felt great. And then very, very quickly, uh, the meeting was over and I was almost done rederiving the product rule. And I was so happy and it had, time had passed so fast. And then, you know, on, on the drive home, it was uh, when I told my father that, that second fact that I had been talking about. Uh, not the first one. He already knew that these rural town meetings were boring. He was there with me. Uh, and so clearly, he knew that they were boring. Uh, but I told him that second fact. I told him I finally knew what I was going to do. I was going to study mathematics. This is Relatively Prime. Origin stories from the mathematical domain. I am Samuel Hansen. Hey, joint math memes. Hello, how are you? Wow, like I, I will in no way ever get tired of having rooms clap for me. The only thing better than having a room clap for you is to have an entire 
room of English mathematicians boo you because you just said terrible things about Isaac Newton, which I thoroughly suggest you do. Um, just go over there, talk about how Leibniz is 100,000 times better than Newton and just watch the boos come in. It is so great. Oh man, that was, that was Mass Jam 2011. Oh, that was it. That was maybe the best day of my life uh, until this day. Uh, because I have all of you here listening to me do a live podcast. Uh, so, little show of hands here. How many of you actually listen to Relatively Prime? That is the most depressing thing I've seen. Uh, okay. Uh, so, everyone, I'm going to give you like two minutes. Uh, take out your smartphones, go to your podcast app, search Relatively Prime, and subscribe. Uh, maybe if all of you do that and tell all of your friends, I'll be able to get some, you know, ad money on the show. Uh, because this show costs a lot of money, uh, and I don't always have it. So, thank you all for coming out to this live recording of uh, Relatively Prime. Tonight, we're talking about mathematical origin stories, why it is that mathematics is our life. And uh, some of you, uh, given how many of you actually listen to Relatively Prime, probably most of you don't know this, but I used to have a different mathematical podcast. Well, okay, to be fair, I've had like three, four, five other mathematical podcasts, but there's one I'm talking about in particular, which was called Strongly Connected Components, and it featured long-form interviews with mathematicians. And one of my favorite questions that I would ask them was, why do you do mathematics? And here are some of the answers so I just that I guess heard. we can start off with the most basic and obvious question, why mathematics? <laughs> I think, uh, for me, it was always math. For two reasons. First, because uh, I love it very much. And the other reason, uh, that's the thing I'm, I do best. So if you do something well, you like it. You love it later. So my dad would make up problems and um, I would do them in my head and, and answer them. And, and he thought it was funny that often that I gave him the answer to the problem before he was finished asking the question. And uh, <laughs> you might think that was a questionable strategy, <laughs> but that, that's one of the ways in which I got a lot of practice early on in mathematics, and it was a lot of fun for me, especially on long car rides. By the time I got to high school, I decided that I wanted to be a lawyer. And that was what I told people I was going to do when, as, as my career choice. I asked a counselor for his suggestions, and his advice was that it was very unlikely that anybody ever got a job that they really enjoyed. But since I was good at science and mathematics, but interested in law, why didn't I think about becoming a patent attorney so that I would combine science and the law? As I went through my first two years, I found that the mathematical aspects of engineering appealed to me much more, and I was greatly inspired by my um, calculus teacher, and by the time I was a junior in college, I had switched to being a math major and never looked back. How did the TV show ER lead you to doing mathematics? <laughs> That's a really good question. So when I was in school, I was basically looking for something to do with my life. And I was watching a lot of ER at the time. And I thought, oh, maybe I could be a doctor. That would be really cool. And of course, watching ER gives you literally no concept of what it's actually like to be a doctor. <laughs> when I was choosing uh, what subjects to study at A-level, kind of age of 16, I basically picked my subjects to do medicine. During my A-levels, I basically realised that medicine was probably not the best idea. But by that point, I'd already started doing A-level maths. And that is when maths starts to get really good. And I, was re I just realised, actually, maths is really quite good. Maybe I'll do that. So that was literally how it happened. I, I feel like my thought process was probably not that simple when I when I think back it seems quite clear what happened but in reality it was probably a bit more complicated than that but that is basically the story yeah when I graduated high school I really thought it would be great to be somehow be a professional magician in order to do that one needed a good business sense and my my goal was actually to get an MBA the reason I did a lot of birthday shows in Cleveland was because I was a good businessman had good ideas for promoting and all that. And I looked at all the guides to getting into top-rated MBA programs and the advice they gave 
was whatever you do, don't major in business. You know, half of all the applicants to the MBA programs are business majors. So I say, if better just if you want to stand out from the crowd, then major in something that establishes you as a problem solver, something technical, engineering, physics, computer science, mathematics. And I said, wow, I like math. Math's my favorite subject. I didn't, but I didn't think I wanted. I didn't know I wanted to be a math major because I didn't, I didn't think I wanted to be a high school math teacher or an actuary, which was I thought the only things you could do with a math degree at the time. But this said you can you can enjoy your math, be a math major, and then apply to business school. Uh, so I went to Carnegie Mellon, which had a three-two program in math and business, and um, never actually ended up taking a business course in my life. I, I seem to see here that, that you were born the child of, of two statisticians. How sad were they when you decided to go into mathematics instead? I, I tried. I tried to learn some statistics, actually, when I was younger. And it's a beautiful subject. But at the time, I think I found the, the shakiness of the philosophical underpinnings were like too scary for me. I felt a little nauseated all the time. Um, math is much more comfortable, right? I mean, you sort of know where you stand, you know what's proved and what's not. There's, it doesn't have quite the same ethical and moral dimension that statistics has. So I was never able to quite get comfortable the way my parents were. For people out in the world, I think it's the stereotype of a mathematician that a mathematician is the kid who was very advanced, very above grade level, doing older kids' math as a younger kid. That was me. That's true. And there are other people who have that story as well. But people have a lot of different stories in math. That's something I've learned a lot as I got older. So there's lots of really great mathematicians who were not at all accelerated and discovered they really loved math much later in life. I happened to discover it before I can even have memory. But that's not true of everybody, that's for sure. When I was a kid, my idea of mathematics was adding numbers up, and when you got really good at that, you got to go to two digits. And when you got really, really <laughs> good at that, uh, then you could do three digits, uh, or even four and five. And um, I think that I had uh, some school teachers who didn't really have a sense of how to challenge a kid for whom adding and subtracting was really straightforward and a little bit boring. Although probably the kids for whom it wasn't straightforward also found that boring. <laughs> so I was really lucky that my father was professor of mathematics and gave me a lot of logic puzzles and, and number patterns to think about, things like that. And I thought that was a lot of fun, but I didn't think that was mathematics. Somehow that was the kind of conversations that we had at home. You know, I think all kids look up to their parents a lot, and that was sometimes the dinner conversation was, I have a little puzzle for you, you want to think about this? Um, and so you could kind of engage in that as a way of interacting with your parents. And I think as a parent now, I find it really hard to, to, to constantly think that way and to try to give my kids something to think about that way. But it, it was certainly for me the kind of thing that got my mind going. I've always loved math since I was really young. Uh, actually, my, uh, my mother was cleaning out the basement. She found some old report cards uh, of mine. And, and uh, my first grade report card had a little comment box. The teacher says, Dave especially loves math. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, so it even started that. Oh, mathematics is uh, is natural to me, in a sense that it, if you think about it, it's rather romantic about the notion of, of absolute truth, pursuing uh, without the gray area. It's either black or white. It's either true or false. In this world, there are not too many things like this. No, uh, and that's uh, that's very true. If if I've done my research correctly, I, your father was an engineer, correct? Yes, and he sort of encouraged me to go into math, saying that math is the foundation of science. So if you are good at math, you can move into any area with ease. Uh, and he's absolutely right, but um, I have been enjoying doing math so much that I never really moved into other areas. <laughs> but but the, the second um, experiment was about a pendulum, and the teacher gave us each stopwatches and our own little pendulum, which was unusual and that it was a pendulum that was retractable, so you could make it longer or shorter. 
in uh, discrete clicks. And then with the stopwatch, we were supposed to time how long it takes for the pendulum to make 10 swings back and forth, then make it longer, 10 more swings, how long does it take for 10 swings, and so on. And so um, it was meant to be an exercise, really, I think, in the use of graph paper. You know, <laughs> uh, that is, there's an independent variable, how long the, the pendulum is, and a dependent variable, what's its period for 10 swings. And you're going to plot a series of dots on your graph paper. And that's what you're supposed to get out of this. But um, as I started to do that, around the fourth or fifth dot, I could see a pattern was emerging, which was that the dots were falling on a certain curve. And it was not a straight line, it was a curve. It had an arc that I looked, you know, I, could, I was able to recognize because I had seen it in algebra class and it looked like a parabola. This to me was a very disturbing, and I would say almost frightening <laughs> thing because there was, I, I don't know what it was, but I suddenly felt like this is what people are talking about when they say there's a law, uh, and there are laws of nature. That how could this pendulum, which is just a, a weight hanging on this, you know, this not a string, but hanging off this uh, arm of the pendulum, how does this thing know to make a parabola? It's like how does the pendulum know algebra? Which was really uncanny. I mean, it was a spooky, just like a creepy thought. Yeah. That there's a hidden world that was not exactly a ghost, but I mean, there's some kind of hidden forces that are ruling the pendulum and presumably lots of other things too. And you can't see them unless you know some math. So that was um, for me a very, like a, a kind of a religious experience almost that I felt like I was being let into some secret place. And I just wanted to, after that, keep going back to that secret place. That was Bruce Resnick, Doran Zailberger, Kristen Lauder, George Andrews, Katie Steckles, Arthur Benjamin, Jordan Ellenberg, Rebecca Golden, David Richeson, Fanchung, and Stephen Strogatz talking about their mathematical origins. But don't worry, I'm not just going to make you sit there and listen to, you know, old interviews. That would be kind of mean, just like get all of you in an audience, just be like, no, I'm going to just keep playing these things I've done. Just relive my glory interviews just over and over again. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that Steven Strogatz clip was great. How about I play that five more times? Uh, that's, that's not really why you came. You came here for new interviews, new content, and, uh, well, let us get to one. Uh, so please welcome to the stage from Loyola Marymount, a math professor, Lily Kajavi. So uh, let's, let's start off uh, this way. Uh, can you tell me what your earliest mathematical memory is. Well, well, first of all, I have to admit, sometimes I read these stories, Jordan Ellenberg alluded to them, of someone who from a very young age knew they wanted to be in math, and you hear about Gauss doing amazing arithmetical wonders when he was um, very, very young, not even 10, and then if you think, oh, that's not me, so I, I, that, didn't, that didn't fit me. But actually, when you did say origin story, I did remember in fifth grade, we used to do different units, and math and one time we finished early and Mr. Rule, I remember he introduced this idea of X just for fun one day. So we weren't starting algebra, but X could suddenly be any number or variable. And, and I do remember actually my jaw kind of dropping and feeling a little like, what? It was wondrous. Um, so it's a podcast, so I thought I would use hand gestures to illustrate, oh, of course. but that was me trying to say mind blown. <laughs> But if you fast forward in the years, I became a chemistry and physics major first. So that, but that was a little origin story. So you eventually became a, a chemistry and physics major. But what was your, uh, your relationship with uh, mathematics when you were younger? Mm-hmm. I mean, whether or not it was you know, the thing that you always knew right. you were going to do. But like how, like what was it like when you were in classes, you know, math classes? Yeah, well, I, I enjoyed it, um, even though I didn't think that that's what I would do. I don't think I knew what a mathematician was I did eventually actually become a math major. I didn't maybe realize until far into that what a, what a mathematician does. But, but um, also through school, though, even in high school, Mr. Cron, he was very dynamic and inspiring and engaging. He was my math teacher. And so maybe he knew he, knew he could encourage us all in that direction. But. So what eventually made you make that shift, going from chemistry and physics into you know, what we all know is, is the true subject, <laughs> mathematics. Well, I really- I, I, like, yeah. I love having this audience that's all, always gonna agree with me. Math is the best thing, right? Everyone, come on. Yeah, there we go. I, I, I'm, I'm always gonna do that. That's great. No, I, um, 
so I was a chemistry and physics major. It was a special dual program. And uh, I, I was taking mathematics all along because I thought science is hard and you need math to do it. I saw math as a tool then. I, but I do remember that I asked for, you had to pick an advisor. And I found out that there was someone in the chemistry department who had been a math major as an undergrad. And so, somehow in the back of my head, I think I had it, that I wanted to do a little more math. And I thought he wouldn't think it was weird if I was signing up for math classes as a chem you needed to as a chemistry and physics major, but a little bit more. This is actually very funny to me because now years later with more perspective, he was actually quite famous. It turned out he'd won a Nobel Prize in chemistry. And I, <laughs> I know I sound close, but I picked him because he'd been a math major as an undergrad. Um, so your route to a Nobel Prize in chemistry, not math, of course, <laughs> perhaps is to do chemistry, but um, be a math major. But then, um, yeah, I did ultimately switch. And uh, when you did switch, when did you uh, start to really get the feeling that you were going to continue on? Because there's, I mean, there's clearly more math majors than there are, you know, mathematical graduate students and definitely more than there are professors and uh, doctorates out there. Well, first, I, maybe I should say when I switched, I think, although I was enjoying my science courses, I start to have this romantic notion, the realization that I could actually just study math and that I would, could be in a cafe, like me, my paper, a pen or a pencil so I could erase and some hard problem, something you're working on. And I had this very idealized, that somehow that was a very romantic picture. I guess this is indicating that being in the lab wasn't engaging me as much then. Of course, now I realize there all, there's all kind of th kinds of theoretical work you can do in science and the lab work is fun too. But I had this romantic cafe notion. Of course, I'm not spending all my time in cafes now although I'm doing math. <laughs> But um, I kept taking more mathematics. And then number theory was a course that really kind of sparked my interest. And even some of your earlier stories were about people talking about really feeling like you've proved something, you've really cracked something, and the satisfaction, the satisfaction of, of really feeling like you understood a problem. Do you remember what a couple of those first problems that you kind of cracked through that gave um, you that satisfaction? Gosh, you know, to be honest, what I remember more now or feel more now is the realization that there are such hard problems out there. You can kind of make math as hard as you want <laughs> to also. So maybe I'm lucky that I was started off with things that were were more solvable. So uh, at least at least recently, you've, you've started going down a, a mathematical path as and not often uh, gone down, which is uh, kind of the intersection of social justice and mathematics. And so I was wondering uh, when you decided or like what sort of led you to start, uh, you know, veering away, I mean, not entirely away from research, but some way away from that mm -hmm. kind of pure idealized platonic form of research and trying to see how mathematics and uh, our, like the lived lives of humans started to intersect. Oh yeah, no, I think these are great questions for us all to think about because, you know, your interests, first of all, your interests can change over time. So what I loved about math in college and then in graduate school, and even now, maybe it's taken on different characters, but also I was always interested in other subjects and in social justice work in particular. And I was teaching a statistics course actually, and wanted to find some real world data that I was in hand for my students, but hadn't been analyzed. And I realized the LAPD was collecting traffic stop data. So I was very interested in the issue of racial profiling. And um, so I brought in some data for my students to look at. And um, it was really a revelation, um, both the impact, having the students think about the data and draw their own conclusions from it. And even pedagogically having powerful moments where people would sort of gasp at what we were, we were testing things statistically and we got to some computation over a certain number is on a certain scale, you realize something is so improbable to have happened by chance. And these had to do with search rates by race and ethnicity in Los Angeles. And some of the numbers were so skewed that um, I had students who were saying, oh, we did something wrong. We're setting up the computation or thinking about this incorrectly because this is so improbable, something must be wrong. But they actually, what they were doing was really correct. So feeling them sort of collectively gasp was very profound. Uh, and and I, I will say uh, this work that she did will eventually come out as a uh, another relatively prime podcast yeah. that's an interview that's been sitting for a little bit. So everyone who's, who's looking at us right now might uh, realize that we don't actually look the same. Uh, and I mean, that, that's amazing, right? Uh, as a matter of fact, a lot of people walking around here probably look a little bit more like me, uh, you know, you know, cisgendered white male. Dapper, uh, dapper and very yeah. dapper. Uh, well, thank you. But I was, I was wondering uh, how uh, your personal identities uh, affected your uh, road into mathematics, if, if they did? Well, I will say that a, a lot of the work I do now in the mathematical community, a big passion of mine also has to do with opening up the mathematical community to, 
to all comers, and in particular, um, women are underrepresented, people of color still underrepresented. At this very conference, we had a panel on hidden figures. I'm wondering if anyone here might have gone. Come on, all right, thank you. Um, and uh, in particular, the history of women of color, African-American women working at NASA behind the scenes doing deep computations through the times, um, but in the background, very much in the background. And it was, it's usually satisfying to really see people come, come together. Um, there are other conferences and a work they've done that's, it's, for me, also tapped me into a part of the mathematical community that I didn't always get in graduate school or in my own, own department and work. Uh, but uh, did these uh, did your uh, you know identities that are not necessarily exactly you know middle of the road for uh, mathematics have an effect or an impact on you while you were studying? Yeah, I would I would say so. I mean, for all of us. Well, I remember in college having switched to become a math major, um, but as a woman, I had a class where there were um, there were 13, 13 of us, me and the guys, and it was the first week of school, and you can shop classes. That is, you could go to a class, and then if you were taking it or not, you could switch your schedule around. And the second day of class, another woman showed up, and I, I still remember this, which, but I don't remember what most of my classes looked like, so that means it's really made an impression on me. I was like, great, we went from one in 13 to one in seven, but then she didn't take the class. So that... Um, and that, that wasn't like, that's not a positive memory, it's sort of a galvanizing one now because I kept going on. But I really want to feel that everyone could take, be inspired to continue on if they wanted, if they wanted to. So one of the things I was thinking about while I was writing the questions uh, for this, the, I, I started to write a question about where the identity of mathematician ranks for you. And then I realized that I never had to think about that. For, for me, it's clear, I can just call myself a mathematician. I published one paper, I barely have a right to do that, but it never entered into my head that I wouldn't be able to do that because my other identities are generally by the culture uh, assumed to be normal. Uh, and so I was sort of wondering if uh, where for you uh, the identity of mathematician, since for so many origin stories, uh, like, I mean, when we think of them in culture, the origin story is often about how you throw away all of your identities to become the hero. Like in mm -hmm. like all the comic book origin stories, that's always what it is, or the villain. Uh, and so, well, you can decide if a mathematician is hero or villain for yourself, uh, <laughs> but where uh, that identity kind of ranks for you. Yeah, well, I think it's true in any kind of community or profession. If you're underrepresented, it's a little something extra that you carry carry with you that doesn't always propel you. I have to do a little extra work to feel welcome. Um, and sometimes it's easier for me to tell stories even about other people than myself. And I remember um, at a conference, we were giving a mentoring award to a woman who, she's an African-American mathematician. She talked about many decades earlier being a graduate student at Berkeley and picking an advisor who was, uh, he's, he's Chinese, because she thought, well, he's in the minority here and so maybe he'll understand a little bit more in some vague way what my experience was. And that really drove home this conscious idea that I think for most of my colleagues in graduate school, when they pick an advisor, they're saying, well, what area do I want to study? How many students does this person already have? And so on. And instead, since you're getting the lay of the land of what is it going to be like to work with this person based on your identity. Uh, and so you mentioned before, for uh, the importance of uh, getting underrepresented communities uh, doing mathematics. Could you tell me some of the work that you personally have helped do in order to help propel uh, some of the underrepresented co uh, communities in, uh, to have more representation? Yeah, well, I don't want to say it's me personally, but there's a group of us that come together and, and it's been a really, um, it gives me a shot in the arm in my own work to be part of that. But, um, but a primary example is something called the Infinite Possibilities Conference run by Building Diversity in Science. And that's one of the groups that help put together the Hidden Figures panel that was here. And we have conferences that anyone is welcome to. I encourage you all to check it out. They're usually every couple of years. But the vast majority of attendees are women and usually women of color. And the first of those conferences was at Spelman College, historically black college, not far from where we are now in Atlanta right now. And uh, I had a chance to go to that conference. It was more than 10 years ago. And maybe 95% of the attendees were African-American women, math. And I thought, wow, I've never been to a math conference like this. When I go to a number theory conference, it doesn't look like this. I started really got my wheel spinning. I was like, what if the US Senate looked like this? It would be a different world. Um, and so over the years, we've continued this conference. It's much more diverse now, um, but mainly underrepresented women in math. And it's very special to come together and very inspiring, we inspire each, inspire each other, just as we're all getting inspired by being in the mathematical environment. So uh, what do you think 
Um, I mean, as, as you said, I mean, you, you started off uh, chemistry and physics, and you eventually uh, got into math. Uh, and that, that's an origin story I wish that we'd hear more often instead of the opposite, which I think I hear more often, which is start in math and then go into the applied stuff. Uh, and what do you think are some things that can maybe help some people? What are some things that we can do as a community to try to get more people to have mathematical origin stories instead of chemistry origin stories or physics or podcaster origin stories? Please, we don't need any more of me. <laughs> well, I don't have one magic solution, um, but I think the needle is starting to move. We can build community together. I will say, as I was listening to the stories you played, it reminded me of of, from the social sciences, they've observed that actually for women in math, they're more likely to have had a father who's in science or mathematics. Not because it has to be a father, but because there are more men in those fields to begin with. And that does imply that the, either role model or just the sense of possibility at an early age actually plays a really profound, profound effect. Uh, hmm. It's different from what we can do as a community. Yes. I know you're thinking, well, how many kids can I have to encourage to go in at math? But, Oh, that just got uncomfortable. Uh, <laughs> but can I add a few more things? Some other, oh, yes, of other things to take Please. part in. So some new mathematical organizations. Um, Spectra is a new LGBT math organization. We've had a series of, over the years, um, more in an ad hoc way, um, receptions and gatherings at the meetings announced for a more official group. And so it's called Spectra. I thought that'd be a very welcoming, rainbowy, and very mathematical name. So when you're talking to... Uh, to students who aren't mathematicians, and, and maybe not even college students, but you're just, you're telling people who are, are starting to show some sort of an interest in math. What's sort of the story that you tell them about mathematics? Well, I will say, first of all, if I come out as a mathematician, has anyone had this experience where you say you're in mathematics and then the other person has a very strong reaction? It might be positive, like, oh, I loved math. Or, I remember doing X, Y, and Z. Or it might be very negative, like you're, they're in confessional telling you, oh, I really, I really hated this class I had. And, and then you're supposed to absolve away this <laughs> negative feeling. But, um, but so it'd be nice to move beyond that so that... that um, I, I like to, for people to feel that, well, I think this is true, that actually math, it's like a language or anything else that you chip away at. There isn't that I'm good at it or I'm bad at it as some, some absolute. So sometimes I'll end up talking with folks about, about that. So I, I have a go-to absolution for that exact, <laughs> that exact problem. What is yours? Oh, gosh. Well, tell us yours first. Well, I mean, mine, mine, mine is just I tell them that, no, they're not bad at math. And then I go through, you know, just basic everyday things, like with various shopping stuff, where they like, no, you're doing math. You do math. Trust me. And I, essentially, I end up like on my knees begging them to admit that they actually do math. Uh, and event that? eventually they absolve me of yeah. my need. Uh, and like, I just turn it around yeah. on them. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to try that. <laughs> I'm going to try that. It's just, it is fun to talk to people. I will say once I was on a plane and it's a gentleman sitting next to me and it turned out he was an engineer, so he's feeling pretty mathy, but he totally lit up. He was like, oh, differential equations. I loved it. And somehow we ended up talking the whole plane ride, not just about math. I'm sure the people around us were like, oh, I wish they would stop hitting it all. Engineer, I'm a mathematician. <laughs> I mean, there there is that sort of that nice feeling when you do run into another member of our weird cult in the wild where you're not expecting to, right? True. <laughs> I've actually been very lucky in my academic work to end up, well, I mentioned the work in racial profiling. At some point, I realized I needed to lawyer up. So I had data that was publicly available, but then... Um, with a law professor and contacting the ACLU of Southern California, we were able to get disaggregated data. And that was my window into going to law conferences now, sociology and criminology conferences with different collaborators. And there's actually sometimes a surprising amount of mathematics, um, statistics, some heavy stuff happening at, the, at these conferences. So kindred spirits, along with perhaps the folks who aren't so excited about math, but should be. So when I need a lawyer, I can call you? Still, then I'll call someone else. That's <laughs> yeah, right. exactly. No, exactly. I, just, I, don't, I don't have any law connections at no. this point, and eventually someone's going to get angry with what I say. <laughs> well, then we'll lawyer up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, well, Lily, thank you so much for talking to me about your mathematical origin story. Samuel, thank you. Yes. Thank you very much. Yeah. Everyone, Lily Kajabi. <laughs> and then uh, next up, I have a returning guest. To relatively prime, he was actually a guest on the very the the second 
the second ever episode the of second. the very second. It's, it's, it's a very important one. Uh, everyone knows. I mean, two is the first prime number. It's much more impressive than one. One's very boring. So he was on the second episode of Relatively Prime. Uh, it's called The Score. Please welcome back Robert Schneider. Uh, and uh, Robert Schneider is a, I believe, a PhD student at Emory, as well as singer, guitarist, a bunch of other things in Apples and Stereo. That's true. Uh, so what came first, math or music? Oh, well, I'm 45, and I just got into math basically in, well, in my 30s. OK, um, so music. <laughs> prior to that, yes. yes. I mean, I don't know. What came? Well, OK. All right, OK, let's go back a little bit. Uh, which came first, math or music? I mean, there's sound waves, physics. I mean, like the Big Bang. <laughs> Uh, yeah, music. Music. <laughs> but no, no. Math. Math? Okay, okay. <laughs> or rather, maths. Maths. Oh, oh no. Oh, I don't. You are, you are not what Peter Rowlett. What don't. was the name of the math conference that you said that you uh, oh, got oh, booed maths, by? Oh, Maths Jam? I've been maths booed jam? by British audiences, too. Uh, were, you, were you dissing Newton? Oh, no, no. I was just <laughs> feeding back wildly. But they thought it was an accident. <laughs> oh, oh, and it wasn't? Of course not. <laughs> 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 okay, uh, so uh, so for you, you've been a musician since. Like, when I mean, when did you start? Uh, you know, playing music. Um, let me think. I learned to play recorder when I was a little kid at school, which I think is a wonderful thing to make little kids do. And I can remember like learning about rhythms, the rhythm patterns, and polyrhythms. So like you're in four four time, but then you have like another instrument that's playing in three four or something like that, right? And they meet up at twelve. And I can remember that blowing my mind, being like, oh, that's so cool. And so, I don't know, or maybe that's when I got into math. Oh, I can't tell now. <laughs> anyway, um, I think that uh, I've, been a, I've loved music my whole life. I used to go to music camps as a kid and stuff, but I wasn't like a musician. I didn't like play in band. Actually, I got kicked out of band. And um, uh, Is there a story there? No. Okay. Oh, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Okay, there was this awesome movie when I was a little kid called The Black Hole. Have any of you seen that great Good, bad Disney movie, sci-fi movie. Okay, okay, awesome. Anyway, it's a very rad movie, especially the soundtrack to it is just, is very, very awesome. Um, moving on, my best friend and I, I played trumpet and he played trombone, and we discovered that if you pulled the valves or whatever out, there's this curved valve. It resembled the lasers that the robots used in the movie. So of course we did that during band rehearsal, and we're like ducking around behind the chairs, acting like we were lasering each other, and for, um, we got kicked out of the band. Um, <laughs> But the principal gave me a peppermint. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> but they let me back in the next year, but I had to play snare drum. <laughs> so, <laughs> I wanted to play snare drum. Oh, okay. okay. I was allowed to. Yes. <laughs> um, but uh, my parents bought me a, a synthesizer, a Moog synthesizer. It used to be uh, back in like the late 70s and early 80s that Radio Shack, which was a really awesome store. Um, <laughs> but they, uh, they used to actually have a Moog synthesizer. Okay, so Moog is the, man, is, one, is the first manufacturer, I believe, of commercial synthesizers, and Radio Shack used to sell one under their brand name, right? So there's this awesome synthesizer uh, from the early 80s that Radio Shack sold, and I just coveted it as a little kid because you could make sound effects like or helicopter and things like that. So, you know, what could be a better machine for a kid? And uh, my parents got it for me for like when, my birthday in sixth grade. And it was my first instrument and I just kind of like fell in love with it. And at that time when I was a little kid, I was really into art. I guess I've been an artist since I was a little kid. That was, that's my love, was drawing and visual art and stuff, comic books and that kind of thing. But the Moog synthesizer is when I became a musician. That's gotta be it. <laughs> uh, and uh, so when did you start uh, realizing that you, that you had this deeper interest in, in mathematics? Uh, and also, uh, how did you uh, realize that this was a, not just an interest that could be separate from a lot of things that you did, but something you could bring into, uh, say, the music that you were playing? Okay, that's a lot, a lot of things to think about. Okay. Uh, mm, huh. What was the first half of the question? Oh, just, uh, okay. What was the thing that got you hooked into what? math? Okay. Oh, well, I mean, I loved math as a little kid. Like, I loved it at school. I loved, uh, I mean, I really found it pleasurable. I loved learning about fractions and things like that. I loved algebra in high school. I got an F in algebra my freshman year in high school. But after that, I, like, did really well in math. Um, and that F was on purpose with my best friend, the same one that we got kicked out of band with the... <laughs> 
It was a conceptual F, not a practical F, okay? <laughs> um, we just decided at the beginning of the school year that we, we, were, we had gotten into the advanced level math that we were just like, it'd be hilarious if we just always turned in blank sheets of paper. This is, can you edit that out or is this really truly live? <laughs> I mean, I can edit sure. it out. I'm not going to edit okay. it out, but I can. Okay, okay. So anyway, um, kids, don't do that because you will get an F and you will have to take it again. And subsequently, you may also, by being similarly rebellious, fail your PE class that you hate and have to take it again too in your senior year. Okay, so there's, that's, okay. that's, that, all, that's, that's very that's important. all of the messages I'm going to yeah, try yes. to get across uh, Children, here. please don't purposefully fail classes. Yes, but, but I loved mathematics. It, um, it was awesome. But once I graduated from high school, um, I went to college and I studied poetry and philosophy and music theory. And um, that's what I was into. Uh, you know, I'm a, you know, artist, music, poetry kind of person. I love those things. They're like a religion to me. I dropped out of college after absorbing those things to some degree to be a musician with my dad's blessing and um, started a band and I started a record label and I built up a recording studio uh, in my bedroom, but then kind of in somebody else's bedroom. And then like, uh, I don't know, it was just music was my life and music, all of my childhood friends who are still my friends were musicians and we made music together and we traded music as kids and we grew up together through music and listening to music and playing it together and recording together. And as we grew into our twenties, that became having bands together and making records together and with my, my lifelong friends. And to me, music was, it was this beautiful, like I said before, it was like a religion. I mean, I just, I believed in it and I had a philosophy about it and my, it, was, it was my community and it was beauty and mystery to me and it was this journey that I was on. And then when I was about 28 years old, um, one thing is that during the 1990s when all, most of this was happening after I dropped out of college as a senior in philosophy, which was convenient, I've got to add, when I decided to go back to school sort of when I was like 40 because I was already a senior. Okay, um, so uh, where was I going with all of that? Uh, oh, yes. When math got had, into your uh, life. So, okay. <laughs> I had bought this huge tape machine from, it was like an early 70s tape machine, an Ampex MM1200 16-track tape machine that I had cut. Hey, Judith. <laughs> this is my lifelong friend and former camp counselor. <laughs> um, uh, uh, <laughs> um, so we're... So where was I? Where was I going with all Ma of that? Ma Ampeg. Of Ma course, I bought this Ampeg Ampex tape machine. Ampex. Um, it's a beautiful analog tape machine from the 1970s. It just sounded so beautiful and rich and warm, and it was so romantic with these meters and flashing lights and huge components. The tape was that thick. No, I, I doubt. Has any of you ever seen two-inch tape, magnetic tape? It is beautiful. You have to look at it sometime if you can. Anyway. Um, I had this tape machine and it was, it, the one problem with it, besides how beautiful and romantic and wonderful it was, was that it broke down every time I used it. <laughs> because it turned out that this particular year of the Ampex MM1200 had a fatal flaw, which was that almost every time you tried to run it or rewind or do anything that involved actually moving the two inch heavy tape, uh, it would blow out a bunch of diodes in its like uh, tape transport mechanism. Okay, so like I had a, technician I lived in Denver at the time who came to my studio and he was like look I am not an expert at this it's the diodes but you're gonna have to learn to fix it yourself so I was like okay this is fun um and so uh I started kind of having to learn about electronics and so I got out the manual for the tape machine and the manual was this thick it was like two dictionaries or something like that three dictionaries if you speak a very slim, uh, <laughs> sparse language. <laughs> anyway, uh, it was multiple dictionaries at large. And when you opened it, all of the pages folded out many times. So there were like these long schematic diagrams that were literally, they would fold out like six times and like, they're crazy looking. And I looked at them, it was just so mysterious and kind of like tantalizing. Um, and so I went to Radio Shack, another plug for the almost defunct corporation and like uh, um and uh, i got a, a book on basic electronics and i opened the book and I, I went into my studio room my control room and i sat down on the floor and i had all of the guts of the tape machine out all over the floor around me and i opened up these, I had these huge schematic diagrams laid out like huge like m maps of the world and i opened the electronics book and on the first page it had ohm's law and ohm's law is this beautiful equation that's like voltage equals current flow times resistance and it was just this simple equation. And at that moment, I realized that the simple algebraic equation I was looking at, I mean, it's the first thing I ever learned about electronics, and that somehow this simple mathematics was 
behind my friendships and my music and my studio and my Moog synthesizer as a child and the, my headphones and my LP records, my microphones, my electric guitar, my band, my record label. It was behind everything in my life that I thought was beautiful and sacred and like amazing. Um, everything that brought me joy and love and all of these feelings flowed into the equation or from it. It was like, you know, a light shone down from the sky through the possible holes in the ceiling of my crummy studio and like onto the page. And I felt it was just, I don't know, it, it was this feeling of like revelation or enlightenment or something. I can't describe it without it sounding cheesy, but it was like that. And I mean, you, we're speaking into the microphone and the sound waves and sound itself is a really mysterious phenomenon. I mean, we are creatures that just manipulate sound in the space around us and the sound waves flow through us, not just into our ears. I mean, they pass through our bodies. We're resonators as well as the instrument, you know? It's like awesome. And the sound comes from my mouth and goes into the microphone. It's transmitted through electrical cables and it goes through the microphone preamp and through the console and everything. And it comes back and it goes through the speakers and it goes back into your ears and into your mind and it's translated into electrical signals again. And the whole thing has Ohm's law at the background, this whole mystical, beautiful, crazy process that helped me create things that I thought were beautiful with my friends. And um, that's when I got into math. Want to show some people exactly what you mean by how beautiful and magical those things you created are? Well, I don't know if I can create something beautiful or magical with my guitar, but I'll try. Robert Schneider. Uh, thank you, guys. Well, I have to do some technical wrangling. I just have to turn this off. Now take it off, put it there. Awesome. Cool. Have you guys been enjoying the conference? Hasn't it been really awesome? It's such a beautiful conference. Uh, uh, this is a song called Energy. It's, it's, it's like maybe like the most popular. I have a band called The Apples in Stereo, and I think, um, I'm not sure if it's our most popular song. It probably is. Anyway, uh, the reason I'm playing it is because it's mildly math themed. It's about energy and it's a mathematical concept. And I wrote it for my son, Max, when he was a little kid. At sunset, I was sitting outside his window as he was going to sleep, and I just was aware that he might hear me. And I was like, I want to write a song about something that's really means something, that's really true. And so I wrote this song.
Robert Schneider, everybody. Cool. And one Thank more you. time. Thank you, Sam. So really, you're awesome. Thank you. Thanks very much, everybody. I'm done, right? Yeah, you're good. Awesome. You're good. <laughs> so, uh, I want to uh, thank the MAA and the AMS uh, for the wonderful joint meetings and for giving us a space to do this podcast. Uh, also, a huge thanks to my guests, Lily and Robert. They were fantastic. And you're welcome. Uh, also, a big thanks to Ohm's Law. I think, I think we have to give Ohm's Law a shout out right now. Uh, and then uh, thank you to Broke for Free and Lowercase N for the music that I used uh, to score these stories today, uh, as well as Science CTN. And uh, also, thank you all. Thank you all for showing up. I mean, it's 8 o'clock on a Friday, and you are listening to a math podcast. You are my favorite people. You are definitely my favorite people. Uh, and uh, so you can find the music that we were talking about on SoundCloud. And uh, yeah, give yourselves a hand. And uh, realprime.com. If you want to know more about the show, that's where you should go. That's the website. Please, now that you're here, I really want you to listen. And of course, you can subscribe on your favorite podcasting client. All of those, plus some other ones. I don't know the names of every single podcasting client, but I'm pretty sure I'm on all of them. I think I'm even in the Google Play Store these days. Maybe not, uh, I think Spotify has podcasts, but they only let in like this many of them. Uh, we need all of you to subscribe so I can convince them I'm popular enough to also be on Spotify. Uh, and then uh, finally, sorry, I have to do this, but I have to do this. If you'd like to support the show, please go to patreon.com slash realprime. That's how you can give a little bit of money to make sure that I can keep telling mathematical stories. Thank you all and have a great night. <laughs>